panda's sex lives are a bit like mine. They're just like nothing for 364 days and then, and then one great day and then they move on. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am wondering why they don't ask about pets on the census. That is a good question. Pets are very much part of our household. Yeah, they are. And if, you know, what they're there for in the future is for trends, then that's actually quite an interesting trend. I, think. I thought so. Thanks, Hannah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've pre-ordered a load of books, which I've just realised is like sending my future self lots of small presents. It's good. That's nice. I wish I'd done it sooner, actually, if I thought about it like that, rather than waiting for books to come out and buy them. I think I ordered one that's out in April, one that's out in May, one that's out in June. Little gifts will drop through my letterbox at some point from me. Then you just have to find the time to read them. Yeah, Yeah. where is that? (laughs) I'm Jen Offord and I'm pretty sure I've got RSI from WhatsApping. Oh, the modern world. Is there someone you can sue? My own stupid self for spending too much time on my phone? I don't know. It's like Caroline Criado Perez says, phones are designed for male hands, not female hands. So you're probably doing a bit more stretching than you should be doing. Mm, interesting. I have a small ridge here on my finger, which I think comes from the way I hold my phone. A phone spur. Yeah, like a phone spur. And I've only just got rid of the one here on my finger that came from holding a pencil. Or like holding oh, a I pen, pen and, like, and writing ones, as a reporter. Yeah. I still got them. Yeah. So that one's just gone down and now I have a phone one. Coming up, I chat to Becky Fedia, National Programme Manager at the Children's Society about the rise in exploitation of children during lockdown. I talk to Britain's youngest theatre producer, 20-year-old Amina Hamid, about her latest project. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about a landmark deal for the WSL. And in Rated or Dated, I'll be reading off notes I've tattooed onto my own self as we watch 2001's Memento. <laughs> I'm laughing at that and also at the fact that I had an itchy eye but forgot I was wearing my glasses and just hit <laughs> myself in the lens. But first, foreign policy, no policy and a whole bunch of euphemisms. It's time for The Bush Telegraph. Houston. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. It's like green powders that we mix with brain octane oil, a collagen powder for hair and nails, and some protein. My, so my main thing, right, he goes for a hike every morning, right, which made me think, why do Americans call it hiking? He's not American, obviously, he's English, but, you know, you're going for a fucking walk. A walk, yeah. And to be clear, the hey, just in case anybody doesn't know who that is, is Orlando Bloom, who gave uh, an interview to the Times in which he laid out his daily routine, which is almost highly indistinguishable from that of a serial killer, I would say. It was crazy. I think it's absolutely relatable. That's how I start all my mornings. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, Hannah, do you feel safer as a woman knowing that there are going to be more streetlights on at some point in the near future? When I go for a when hike. When you go for a hike, exactly. Actually, I'm not just being facetious saying that because where my mum lives in Harwich, there is no 
overnight street lighting and it is legitimately terrifying so i think that's it's a lot of little alleys around yeah exactly exactly well. it's, it's genuinely scary so i think that having more street lighting is a good thing but i also think it's a good thing for people who just like want to find their keys for example mm. <laughs> so, yeah so yeah and i also think the government could have tried a bit harder to find better ways of making women feel safer in the wake of the murder of sarah everard and I would argue that surely one of the most obvious ways to do that would be to improve the education of young people at school. So, yes, in fact, the government was criticised by teachers last week for having failed to provide political leadership to ensure zero tolerance of sexism in schools. Since a report by the National Education Union was published in 2017, which found more than a third of girls had been harassed at mixed-sex schools... No action has been taken to rethink the curriculum or provide a national strategy, Rosamund McNeil, who's Assistant General Secretary of the Union, told The Guardian. To recap on that survey, 24% of those surveyed said that they'd been subjected to unwanted physical touching of a sexual nature. 66% said they'd experienced or witnessed the use of sexist and misogynist language. And 34% of primary school teachers also said they saw gender stereotyping on a weekly basis. And the Department for Education does actually issue guidance to schools which states that pupils should be taught about violence and sexual harassment between children in schools. But the issue is so serious, says McNeil, that this goes nowhere near far enough and the issue needs to be integrated into the curriculum. And she added, it's quite a chilling sentence here, there's a direct line between sexist ideas and problematic behaviour then leading to violent behaviour. Young people don't grow out of them, they grow into them. Yeah, that's bleak, isn't it? It is really bleak. And yeah, just so obviously like the first place to start. But there we go. Yeah, I mean, and who would have thought our government wasn't really interested in fixing it? (laughs) That's that's entirely new information (laughs) to me. So let's have a look at what's sadly still going on in the case of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, the British-Iranian charity worker held in Iran since 2016 and accused of being a spy. The 42-year-old, who was found guilty in her original trial of, quote, plotting to topple the Iranian government, spent nearly nine months of her four years in jail in solitary confinement and spent the last year fitted with an ankle tag at her parents' home in Tehran. The charity worker was freed from house arrest earlier this month, but instead of being allowed to leave the country to return to her husband and young daughter in the UK, Zagari Ratcliffe was hauled in front of Iranian courts on yet more charges. Richard Ratcliffe, her husband, said, quote, Nazanin was allowed at the hearing to make a personal statement where she clarified that she did not accept the accusation and pointed out that all the accusations and evidence put forward had been part of her trial in 2016. He continued, while the charges are not particularly relevant, since the point of reviving this case again was simply to hold Nazanin for leverage in negotiations with the UK. It's worth clarifying that no new accusations were made. He added that he was concerned that no decision would be made before the end of the Iranian New Year in April and called on the UK Foreign Office to abandon its reluctance to describe her as a state hostage. On Sunday, the Defence Secretary... Do you want to have a guess who that is, Jen? Do you know what? I genuinely don't know. (laughs) No, neither did I, but it's coming up. That's the good news. He said that Britain should clear a standing debt with Iran amid claims that that was preventing the release of Zagari Ratcliffe, 
who has been told her imprisonment was linked to a £400 million debt owed by Britain for an arms deal to Iran dating back to the 1970s. Ben Wallace, that's him. I've never heard of him. (laughs) Me neither. He told Times Radio it was absolutely right that we should honour that debt. But, he added, of course, since then, Iran has clearly indulged in hostage-taking diplomacy with a number of countries, including the UK, which makes life much harder for many people. Also, he said, there are sanctions in place. There are rules of governing sanctions. You wouldn't expect me to break sanctions in order to deal with that issue. We have to find a way of upholding our obligations legally on the debt, but also complying with sanctions. That sounds so fucking weasley, doesn't doesn't it? It doesn't make any sense, but fine. Boris Johnson apparently demanded the release of Zagari Ratcliffe in a phone call with President Rouhani earlier this month. Although I do have to remind everyone that back when he was a foreign secretary, Johnson said that she was, quote, simply teaching people journalism, a statement her family and employer both said was untrue and likely to complicate her situation. Let's leave this with the words of Victoria Corrin Mitchell, who earlier this month tweeted, quote, My daughter used to play with Gabriella Ratcliffe, who is six years old and whose mummy has been in prison for five years. She never did anything wrong. It's just politics. All they want is to be back together having a cuddle. The UK government could put this right. Too many innocent women are in prison who just want to hold their children again. Well said, Victoria. I mean, I don't know where to start, really. So basically, they're just not going to do anything the uk government are just not gonna what what does that statement mean, I mean it's, from what he's ben saying Wallace. is oh we absolutely think that that money should yeah. be paid but oh there's sanctions so the, i think the implication on what he was saying because i did a bit more reading on this the implication of what he's saying was that they would find other ways to send the money to iran which didn't break sanctions like give it to relief organizations and i'm pretty sure that's not what the iranians want I mean, it's, it's like saying we want four hundred million pounds, and them saying, "Will you accept it in Argos vouchers or something?" <laughs> I mean, it's just not. It's it's not going to solve the problem. But who's in, who's going to impose the sanctions on us? The international no, no, community. No, no. The international community has sanctions against Iran. Right. So for us to give them money would break those sanctions. But, but just playing devil's advocate here, if we actually do owe them money an international court has ruled that we do and Mm. we agree we probably should pay it back can the international community not just sort of go well in this case seems fair it's not like we're doing business with them well i agree on that point but i suppose it does also they will argue i would imagine because like i say i just don't think i think the government want to be able to be seen to be doing something but also not have to do something the argument is, in that case, if she is a hostage, they are paying... A ransom. And they don't negotiate with terrorists. Right. It's very complicated, but it's all being focused on one poor woman who's just seemingly just been plucked out of like opportunism and is now having more and more and more accusations thrown at her she's essentially being retried for something she's already been tried for and they're being presented like they're new allegations fucking hell yeah it's not great well poor her and poor her family that's awful yeah 
Would you like some good news? Please. I mean, it's mostly good news for Juan Juan, a lady panda on loan to Beauval Zoo in <laughs> France, and Yan Shi, the zoo's resident male panda. The pair were put in contact, in inverted commas, with each other a massive eight times on Saturday. <laughs> wow, the zoo announced at the weekend. And no, that's not what I'd normally call it either. But reading between the lines, I think they meant that the pandas listened to some tapes together, which is, you know, famously rare for pandas, actually. However, the zoo reported that the pair were both cooperative and rather active. So that's good news. Brand new information for me. Female pandas are only fertile for 24 to 48 hours a year. So keep your paws crossed. I didn't actually know that. I knew that pandas have problems. Yeah, with in- intimacy issues. Because men pandas aren't that interested. Yeah. Apparently, it takes them a while for them to to become interested. But <laughs> um, that, do you remember that um, that thing on the Mighty Boosh? The first series of the Mighty Boosh, where he's like dressing up as a panda. Where they work in the zoo and he dresses up as a yes. panda to try and romance the other panda and he gets dragged <laughs> out and he's going like, I'll call you. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, Jen? I've got another good piece of news. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Two bits of good news. What is this? 2012? <gasps> Only. Some of you may have seen recently that Radio 2 DJ and all-round good egg Joe Wiley began a campaign for people with learning disabilities to be prioritised in the vaccination programme. Wiley's sister, Frances, was hospitalised with coronavirus last month after an outbreak at her Northamptonshire care home. Despite the obvious dangers to people with a diagnosed learning disability, and just in case they're not obvious, the risk of death involving COVID is 3.7 times greater than that for people without a learning disability, the DJ was offered a vaccine before her sister. But last week, Wiley said that she, quote, couldn't be happier that her sister Frances was finally due to have her vaccine at the weekend. Well done, Joe, and good health to you, Frances. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we wonder how exactly a notebook can be empowering. Yes, Paper Chase, I'm looking at you. So you may have seen this, Jen. Over the weekend, a Twitter user discovered that the stationery store is selling a notepad covered in a drawing of women's bums. Right. It's part of their equilibrium range, of which the company says, quote, feel empowered every day by our equilibrium pieces that aim to uplift and motivate with inspiring slogans, funky prints and diverse representation. We are excited to bring you a collection that encompasses unity and inclusivity in its range of stationery and gift options. <sighs> Other notepads in the range include a woman riding a zebra with pink hooves shouting through a loud hailer. Because if we do need to be inclusive of anyone, it's zebras. Best to be clear about this, I don't actually care if anyone is selling a notepad with bums on. What I care about is the word empowerment which is being used both in the description and in the reply to that tweet complaining about the notepad. In fact, here's the whole tweeted response. This image has become a symbol of female empowerment and recognised as such in this form. We are proud to be supportive of this. We have also seen similar themes elsewhere. We have received great feedback from customers at the positive message it drives. Question... So, is it the bums or the zebra that have become a symbol of female empowerment? 
the bum. Okay, cool. It's cool. the bum. Thanks. Right. Yeah. So, what is my problem? I mean, open question. But firstly, that image is not recognised as a sign Ooh. of female empowerment because, given what I do for a living, if it was, I'm pretty sure I'd have seen it before. Secondly, having seen similar themes is about as good a defence as telling your mum you only bunked off school because your mates were doing it. I love a notepad as much, if not more, than any woman. I've not bought one for a year and I still haven't made a dent in the pile of unused notebooks next to my desk. But do they empower me? Do they fuck? For the avoidance of any doubt, the word empowerment means the process of giving someone power and status. Now, granted, in a post-apocalyptic UK where no paper survives and everyone is desperate to get their thoughts down somewhere, hawking notepads to women tired of scratching their to-do list into their wall (laughs) probably is empowering. I mean, Christ, I could be the queen of the ashes if that happens. But we're not there yet. And Paper Chase is just the latest in a long line of companies using what Helen Lewis and I called woke capitalism in our review of the year podcast in December. Claiming to be empowering women or girls or people of colour or LGBT people and on and on provides a facade of morality to companies who may be failing to practice what they preach. Paying women the same as you pay their male colleague and offering them decent maternity pay empowers women not laying them off while they're pregnant. Selling them notepads or lipsticks or a bit of driftwood with the words, you go girl, (laughs) scratched into them, does not. Sure, it might make them feel a bit more confident, maybe even inspire them, but does it give them power? Does it fuck? In fact, I'd argue that revealing to women that you believe they will buy into the idea that it does and unquestioningly hand over their cash actively disempowers them. One more thing to say on this, and that's if you buy a notepad from the Equilibrium range at Paper Chase, which are priced between £7 and £12, £1 of the purchase goes to the charity CAMFED, a pan-African charity improving education for girls. Now that, my friends, is what empowerment looks like. Maybe just give the charity the whole 7 to £12, and I'm sure I've got a notebook you could have. <laughs> yeah, it's maddening, isn't it? I'm joined by Becky Fedia, National Programme Manager for the Disrupting Exploitation Programme at the Children's Society. She's joining me today to chat about the impact of lockdowns that we've had on children and specifically around children who become involved in organised crime groups. So hi, Becky. Thanks very much for joining me. No problem. So some of the people listening will have heard that and be thinking, what? Kids? Organised crime? What? Because they will, as I did, be used to hearing and referring to these groups as gangs. And I want to come back to that in a minute because there's a reason why you don't use this term. But first of all, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what these groups are and how children and young people come to be involved in them. So at the Children's Society, um, we support young people who've become victims of exploitation of different forms. So that might be um, child criminal exploitation. It might be sexual exploitation. And what we see is that children and young people are groomed by organised crime groups. So sophisticated networks of traffickers and perpetrators of exploitation who kind of, I guess, lure them in with false promises of things like friendship, status, money, and very, very quickly that turns into coercion and control and abuse. And young people are then kind of 
stuck within this cycle of exploitation where they're forced to do things that, that they don't want to do and that's how it happens. So I guess the things that we would most commonly think of would be, I don't know, drugs, uh, you know, like running drugs and, and things like that. I mean, that is just one stereotype, I guess, and there are lots of stereotypes around these groups and we hear a lot about particularly children from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds being drawn into organised crime groups and this is probably quite a good time to talk about why you don't use the term gangs if you don't mind explaining that to us. I guess to speak to your first point we see at the Children's Society children in from from all communities who can become vulnerable to, to exploitation and whilst things like poverty can play a factor and make a, a young person particularly vulnerable to, to grooming and whilst perpetrators can take advantage um, of a young person maybe needing extra money in the family actually young people from from all uh, all types of backgrounds can be groomed and exploited and then I guess to speak to your your second point at the children's society we we try and avoid the the use of the word gang because what we find is that it conjures up really unhelpful stereotypes and images of you know young people hanging around on street corners and committing crime and there are also very problematic racial connotations with that word for us the word gang implies some degree of consent you know like we talk about people choosing to join a gang and it really doesn't convey the kind of grooming and the coercion and the abuse that the young people we support have experienced. So we prefer to talk about organised crime groups or to talk about types of exploitation. So as you mentioned, kind of moving and carrying of drugs is one that's quite kind of well well known now and talked about and often referred to as county lines. But there are other other forms of exploitation as well. And ultimately, they those different forms of exploitation are, are overseen by sophisticated networks of traffickers and um, not isolated groups of young people or young adults. So we did an interview a while ago. Hannah spoke to the head of the Internet Watch Foundation. It's, it's kind of similar to that, that. For example, you shouldn't use the term child pornography because it implies some kind of consent, which of course you can't give if you're a child. So is it kind of the same thing that you you can't really sign up to a life of crime as it were as as a child like there has to have been some kind of external influence that has kind of drawn you into that yeah absolutely and you know i think when when we um when we hear the term gangs and when we see it in the papers often there's this implication of sort of this concept of like young drug dealers and actually you know that's that similar to what you're saying with with the term child pornography that's not what's happening here these are children young people who are victims of of exploitation of grooming of coercion and it's really important that we see them as that um and that they're not seen as as criminals who are kind of choosing to participate in 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 criminal activities so yeah you're quite right sort of touched on this already but in terms of like all of those stereotypes that we hear about that we think about and and as you've said people from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds can be exploited because their their need for money can be exploited but it sort of seems to me that really anyone could get drawn into this is that something that you see a lot yeah so i mean that we see children from from all different types of uh, backgrounds communities and um, who end up becoming victims of exploitation and Whilst poverty can make a young person particularly vulnerable to grooming because it's um, a, a vulnerability that someone looking to exploit a child can can use, mm. they they might might be just as likely to have other types of vulnerabilities. So, for example, maybe learning disabilities, or if they're feeling lonely or having a particularly challenging time at home, those are all things um, that someone looking to exploit a young person can take advantage of. You know, re- our researchers found that. 
some groups, um, including children who've experienced family breakdown or those challenges at home, um, might be deliberately targeted by, by adults looking to groom and coerce children. So I feel like grooming is sort of, it's something that is often left out of the discussion. I don't think that's talked about very much. As you've said, the, the stereotypes that we see sort of portrayed in the media. When I say media, I mean in news reports, but also I mean, you know, popular depictions, I guess, of this kind of thing, uh, you know, on TV and film, et cetera, et cetera. I, th- I feel like there is a perhaps a greater understanding of that now. Maybe things are moving in a slightly different direction in terms of how it's represented there's a storyline on coronation street for example of a young man who is being groomed by a group who are taking advantage of the fact that he has a difficult home situation so there have been a few reports recently i mean there have been lots and lots of reports about the impact of covid and particularly the closure of schools on children you know across the country from all different backgrounds for many 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 different reasons the disruption to their education being you know the main one I think that people have talked about there are lots of other reasons why Covid and lockdowns and the closure of schools have been bad for kids and I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the impacts of Covid and how that's exacerbated some of the the risks to children from organised crime groups. I mean children who are exploited by organised crime groups what we've seen is that during the lockdown, um, those groups have not stopped exploiting children. And in fact, in some cases, they've adapted their methods to ensure that those children remain undetected and continue um, to be hidden from the view of people who could be offering them support. And we've heard examples of maybe children being asked to carry drugs in taxis rather than on trains because now they're more visible when they're kind of using transport networks. And we've seen an increased use of um, trap houses. So that's where often the home of a vulnerable adult is taken over to use as a base um, for drug dealing. And we've seen that increasingly children are being made to operate from these locations rather than out and about on the street again, so that they they remain hidden. And I suppose one of our main concerns um, during this period is that many children have become less visible to professionals. So where they'd be seeing teachers, maybe seeing social workers, other types of professionals going to youth clubs. Those are all people who who could be spotting the signs that there's something wrong for that young person and, and offering help. But in actual fact, where children and young people are mostly at home, um, our main concern is that there might be hundreds of young people who are experiencing exploitation and are just uh, remaining hidden and going unnoticed. And at the same time, a lot of vulnerable children have had no respite from challenges that they might have at home, might be feeling isolated from family or friends, increasing job losses and uh, rise in poverty within households. All of those things make children, young people more vulnerable to to the advances of criminals um, and organised groups looking to groom them and exploit them. During during lockdown, where where income has has fallen in households, or you know, could be those other vulnerabilities we spoke about before, whereby maybe a young persons feeling more isolated than they were before, um, or you know, suffered other losses during COVID. Those are all things that we know that that criminals looking to exploit children can take advantage of. So where a young person is suffering financially, the grooming process will involve potentially them being offered money where a young person is maybe feeling unseen um, or unloved then again an exploiter will look to offer them status or offer them friendship and so those are unfortunately all things that we know um, criminals will will seek out um, in children young people and utilize to to groom them and to trap them into a cycle of exploitation 
I've seen a few reports, but are you actually seeing an increase in that activity? I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure how you measure it, but anecdotally or, or otherwise, have you seen a, a rise? One of the issues, particularly with uh, criminal exploitation, is that there is there's no national strategy for recording, like like you just oh, said. Oh wow! Um, okay. So data is a huge issue, and it's very very difficult for us to know the extent to which children and young people are suffering from this because data sets are uh, patchy; they vary from area to area. So it's hard to know in the first place, kind of what the scale of the issue is. I mean, what we do know is that during the lockdown period at the Children's Society, we continue to see children and young people being exploited, being groomed. And those things haven't stopped just because lockdown has happened. And, you know, one of the things that we anticipate is there's a potential that when children and young people go back to school and there are more kind of eyes on them and more people looking out for what might be going on for for a young person, there's a potential that things that have happened to a young person during lockdown become apparent um, and they haven't received support during that period. That's one of the things we're kind of mindful of. So if you are worried about a young person, maybe your own child or someone else's child, you know, a little brother or sister, whoever it may be, what kind of signs can you can you look out for for someone who you believe might be at risk? There are lots of different indicators that we would that we tell people to look out for. Some of the things that parents or carers might notice at home that we would say, you know, that might raise kind of alarm bells would be a young person going missing and potentially being found in a location that maybe is quite far away from where they live or from their home. Other things would be coming home with uh, gifts, mobile phones, clothing um, that parent or carer can't account for, doesn't know where it's come from. A young person having multiple mobile phones can often be an indicator. And then other things like arriving home looking dishevelled, with unexplained injuries, you know, children, young people being particularly secretive about who they're talking to, where they're going. Those are all things that we'd that we'd say to kind of be aware of at home. But then there are also things that the general public can look out for, even if they don't know a young person personally. So, for example, this might include if if a child is travelling alone, maybe on a train, particularly late at night, and um, maybe looking lost, like they're in unfamiliar surroundings or appearing like they are kind of under the control or instruction of others. Those are all things that we'd, we'd ask people to kind of be aware of and, and look beyond the obvious, I guess. What can you do to help as an individual, What other than look out for things? You know, say you spot someone on a train late at night and you think, well, oh, this isn't right. What, what do you actually do about that as, as an individual who's not involved with that child or someone who is? For, for someone who's involved with a child, so a, maybe a parent or carer or an older sibling, um, we would always say if you're worried, like the most important thing is to speak to your child. A lot of children and young people who experience exploitation feel that they've done something wrong or it's their fault. So it's really important to let them know that they're not in trouble and tell them you know, that you're worried about them and why it is you're worried. And a lot of children will be reluctant to talk at first and they might believe that they're protecting family and friends by kind of keeping things a secret because that's what an exploiter will have told them. So it's important to let a young person know that you're aware of that risk and that it's not their job to keep you safe, that they're not alone and, and that they're not to blame. And, you know, ultimately we would encourage parents, you know, if there's an emergency, of course, call 999, but you can also report non-urgent concerns to the police on 101. Um, you can speak to other professionals, so reporting concerns to uh, children's social care, to your GP, maybe to local youth worker or youth organisation. And parents who need a bit of advice or support can also contact the NSPCC, who have kind of an advice line. 
and you know similar things go for for members of the public like i said it's it's important for people to look beyond the obvious and i would say if you have concerns about a child out and about um if they're non-urgent do call 101 and report that to the police um if you're on a train and you see a young person you can always contact british transport police and you can report concerns anonymously to crime stoppers as well we sort of touched on it earlier that, you know, you, you don't have a lot of quantitative information about these things because the, the statistics are not necessarily, you know, they're not recorded in the right way. What is the government doing about all this? Are they doing enough? Could they be doing more? Is there anything in particular that you guys are sort of campaigning for at the moment? There have been some positive developments, particularly in relation to criminal exploitation, which is kind of becoming more recognised as an issue. So for example, uh, the government set up the National County Lines Coordination Centre to look specifically at the issue of county lines um, and how that should be tackled. And they also introduced the Modern Slavery Act. So that means that adults who are exploiting children, young people can potentially be charged for crimes related to grooming and exploiting children rather than just drug related crimes. But there's definitely there's definitely more that needs to be done at the Children's Society. We're calling for the introduction of a national strategy to tackle exploitation, particularly criminal exploitation. And that strategy needs to be backed by the right finance, because currently what we see is that many children, young people and families experience a kind of postcode lottery in the support that they can get and the support that they can access. Um, and also, uh, as I mentioned, there's there's kind of not a kind of national strategy to to look at how we record the issue, how data is collected. So that that all needs to be introduced in a national strategy with with funding available to support that strategy. And then we also calling for things like the government defining child criminal exploitation in law, making sure that the national referral mechanism is better used. That's the mechanism by which victims of trafficking are identified and supported which is often underused or not properly understood so they're all things that you know we feel need to be done to to address this issue the stereotypes that we've talked about here people thinking that these children are like these kind of like marauding gangs of, of criminals do you think that leads to a kind of lack of engagement by government perhaps to fix these things because it is deemed that the people, the children who are suffering are perhaps, quote unquote, less important. I think what we see at the Children's Society is that often support is available when it's too far down the line. And, you know, whilst that support is important, we advocate for earlier intervention to stop this happening to children and young people in the first place. So, for example, whilst the increase in funding to councils that's been announced is welcome. Over the last decade, £2.2 billion has been cut from, from councils' children's services budgets. And what that means is fewer things available for children, young people who are struggling, fewer earlier interventions that can stop things from getting worse for a young person. And so we, you know, we, we do think that more needs to be done to provide support at the earliest opportunity to stop exploitation from happening to a young person in the first place, rather than addressing it when when it's already happened to to a young person. The Children's Society is a charity, obviously, um, and there's more information about this on your website and indeed a page where you can donate, should you so wish to. Becky, where can we find the website? If you go to childrensociety.org.uk, you'll find all the information about our organisation and about what we do to support young people and their families who have experienced exploitation. Becky, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me, Jen. 
Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mick's had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. So this has worked out rather well. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined on the phone by Amina Hamid, who last year, aged just 20, became the youngest ever female producer on the West End when she co-produced Death Drop at the Garrick. Something that deserves enormous congratulations, Amina. Thank you for joining us and tell us what that moment felt like. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, it felt it, it felt amazing and very surreal. I think particularly to be doing that in the middle of a pandemic and to have that sort of what feels like an age ago now, but that, that lovely break where we all got to go to see theatre and, and do things again. It was amazing and, and it, I really feel like it's been... It's it's been big for for me, but I think also I hope for for more than that because I know what I represent as a young woman and as a young woman of color to be in that position. I know what that that can represent to people, and and because I've seen it, because I've seen it when I you know growing up, you you relate to people who look like you, and I think it's so important to me to to kind of be that for other people. Absolutely, and I'm going to come back to that. The first question we usually ask people is or it has been recently, you know, what's the last year been like for you and your industry? Yeah. And the truth is, actually, the project that you're currently working on is the best way to answer that question. So perhaps we could skip to that. Could you tell us about what it is that we are going to be talking about today that you have on the horizon this week, in fact? Yeah, I'm working on an event called Graduates at Cadogan Hall, which has been all about platforming 2020 and 2021 graduates and giving them the space to sing on the stage of Cadogan Hall and be accompanied by a brilliant graduate MD, Sam Young. And it's been a little bit insane um, because it's such a large scale project. Um, yeah. But it's been it's been absolutely amazing. And it, it's just so nice to kind of be back. Well, it was so nice when we were filming to be back in a room and to be able to give that opportunity safely to so many people and so many people who felt like they were being left behind. I think in the first lockdown, it felt like there was kind of some impetus to support 2020 graduates. But you know, it, it, a third one came around and I don't think anyone had the energy to to support yeah. anything. So it was really about, for us, finding finding what we could do and finding the best way of making sure that people didn't lose out on an opportunity they so well deserved. Because it's, I mean, it's so hard that this is the start of someone's career and this is how it starts. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just enough to put anybody off doing it it's not but I suppose for some people it might be for some people that you then start to wonder whether the financial investment is is worth the return when you don't even know if theatres are going to be open again it must be very very difficult for young people I think yeah absolutely and I think and I mean particularly they've 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 put so much into this so much of themselves and and as you say so much in terms of the the financial contribution to then not really know where it's going to go and and I think it was it was very important to show that they aren't forgotten and to show that 
you know, the industry is ready to welcome them and it, when it comes back in its full form. And we wanted to make sure that they knew that they were as much a part of this industry as, as everyone who's been in it for 10 years. Mm. And, you know, just because it didn't start quite the way that we'd all hoped doesn't mean that, you know, they, they should be they should be turned away or, or feel out of out of place because I, you're right, it is so easy to go, maybe this isn't for me because there's just not the opportunities that they usually are. Can I ask you, how can people get involved? You are filming these and then they are streaming online. So if people are able to buy tickets and watch them, aren't they? Yes, yeah. So you can go to Encore-Theatre and find the tickets there. It's three streamed concerts and they're each an hour long. And so you can you'll have access to watch them whenever you want. And it's a great, you know, we've all run out of things to watch on Netflix. So it's yeah. a perfect <laughs> replacement for that. They'll be available from the 26th through to the 4th of April. And you are raising money for a charity by doing this, which is called Acting for Others. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So Acting for Others, and particularly in this time, has been a brilliant charity in terms of it supports theatre makers who um, have fallen out of the industry, have fallen and have done on their luck in whatever way. And obviously with COVID causing, you know, theatre to shut and, and the industry to kind of close its doors in some in some parts. It's been so important and the work that they're doing is just amazing. And, and obviously we, we thought it was important to platform these graduates, but it was also very much important to us to make sure that we were reflecting the industry as a whole um, and supporting the wider industry as well, because there are people who've, who've been in it for longer or, who, or who've just come into it who need that support from acting for others. Um, and we're just we're so honestly so proud to be to be part of part of their their raising and, and part of that because it, it is really a brilliant charity. Now we're talking about young people getting involved in sort of being in theatre from the creative side of it. I wanted to ask you what you thought about young people being interested in theatre, as in being in the audience of theatre, and how that may have been impacted by the last year because on the one hand part of me thinks you know if this was something that you just discovered and you were young and younger and you thought oh my god I love theatre and then suddenly you couldn't go for a year you may suddenly now be a film fan or something instead but on the other hand theatre has never been more accessible in as much as you can pay a fiver and watch it on your telly at home so I wonder what you thought the sort of dynamics of the audience of the theatre might be changed in terms of age because of this. That's such an interesting question and one I haven't like I haven't hugely thought about. I think for in terms of looking, as you say, streaming makes it so much more accessible in so many ways. I mean, I'm originally from Southampton and I used to travel in on the train to London on special occasions to see um, theatre here or go to my local theatre, but. You know, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be able to, for example, watch The Colour Purple, which was filmed at Leicester Curve, a place I have never been, yeah. um, while, you know, while being sat at home in Southampton. And I think it just gives you the access to theatre that I hope will stay. I think streaming, it feels like it's here to stay and, and it really does make it more accessible to, to those audiences, but also to audiences. I mean, I was talking to a, a smaller venue and they're a, they're a pub theatre, so they're above a pub. And so they're not accessible because they have stairs. And yeah. so it's really great to be able to, you know, make make shows that wouldn't be accessible in that way accessible to people. I also see that, you know, you could have just discovered theatre and kind of, 
realize that it's something you love and then you know the the doors are shuttered but I think there's something there's a I always say there's a reason that theater has survived for so long and it it's the live experience and the communal experience of being sat in that room with people and I think that doesn't have that doesn't have an age limit to it I just hope that theatre pays attention to who its audience is and who its audience can be because I think we've had this time to you know think and and take space and I I hope as we come back into it as we look forward to these dates that we you know live up to that and and make shows for our audiences as they as diverse as they can be Mm, god i miss theater so much (laughs) i miss theater so much there's a a new version of jerusalem which is being dangled in front of our noses the the jess butterworth play that it's coming this year but we don't know when it will be because obviously it's so difficult to plan anything and when i saw jerusalem the first time the, the first play you know when it was on its first run I still think about that now, that when it ended, the room just erupted. And it was almost like being at a sporting event. The, yeah. the, the, the power of it. And yeah, that's something, although it's brilliant to be accessible, that is something that you don't get when you're sitting at home. I do yeah. want to talk about accessibility to you. I'm glad you brought that up because on your website, you say one-handed Black daughters of immigrants are rare to find in the public eye. And that is a description of yourself, obviously. And I specifically wanted to talk to you about one of those intersections, which I think is the least discussed, which is Mm -hmm. actually disability. And I wondered how you felt that the theatre was dealing with the issue of disability for accessibility both for people to be welcomed into the acting sort of and producing community and also for the audiences it's funny because it took me I think quite a lot of of time to come into calling myself disabled and coming into that term because there is this expectation of what it means and I think particularly in in terms of acting and representation on stage it feels like being disabled means being in a wheelchair and that's not what it means at all I feel like it's so it's it's always so interesting because it feels like the quietest voice and the one that people aren't listening to. And it's not because obviously there's so many people shouting about this, but it it feels like the voice that people ignore or don't hear or don't think about. Because when you are able-bodied or when you don't identify as disabled, it is it's difficult to realise that actually, you know, there's there's this series of things that you wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to do. But you'd never have thought about that. I mean, I was I was born with one hand, so I have no idea how I do things with two. Um, yeah. But there's so much to learn and to listen to, and I, I feel like theatre falls short in doing that because it is, you know, there's there's things like people saying, "Oh, well, we'll get a BSL interpreter," and then realizing that not everyone speaks sign language, and all of these these things that you have to have those conversations and open that dialogue. And I think I feel like theatre could do more to to do that. It's interesting to me that you, that's the thing you picked up because it's the thing that nobody else does. I find a lot of the time that it, you know, the conversation leans towards my my being black or being young or being a woman, and it's rarely about being disabled. And I think it it's because of perception because there's this idea that if I can get to where I am, I must not be. Because there's this idea that disability means an inability to do something, and it 
And it comes, I think, from the term, but that's not what it means at all. And I think, you know, it's all about finding and having those discussions because you'll because we'll all realize that actually there's so much that people can do if you can just talk to them about what they need yeah. to be able to do that. I had a really good chat with Matt Fraser, the actor, late last year about disability. We we did a podcast with him and about how sort of, you're right, it is quiet. It's, no, he's not quiet. He's fantastic. He's not <laughs> quiet. But how so much of the sort of the conversation about it seems really hushed. And there's always yeah. a, he he, gave, he said that there's always like something else that's, that's perceived as more important. And we'll get round to doing disabled issues when we've tackled the issues of gender inequality or racial inequality. And he's like, I don't understand why we can't tackle them all at the same time. It's yeah. <laughs> why it has to be, there has to be a list that you that you get through i've heard death drop is potentially reopening at the garrick is that correct it is it is we're coming back on the 19th of may um which i'm so excited for i bet are tickets available to buy now yes yeah you can go to deathdropplay.com and find tickets there they are selling very fast so i would (laughs) get them quickly that's really great news yeah, it's it's really exciting to see people being excited about coming back to theatre. And I think it's I mean, it's, it's our job to show that it is safe to do so. And, and we wouldn't we wouldn't be coming back if we didn't know that we could do this. And with the help of, of NIMAC, we're able to, to keep it as safe as possible and, and to reduce risk hugely. And I think, you know, it, it's really nice to see that trust being built and and people understanding that we are absolutely doing our best and making sure that it will be safe for them to return to theatre with us in May. I'm probably not going to get a ticket for Death Drop at this rate, am I? I need to hang up now (laughs) and do it. But um, yeah, I look forward to seeing uh, something you've been involved with soon. Amazing. Thank you so much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we slide across the pitch on our knees in celebration as we discuss all things women's sport. This week's instalment comes fresh from the announcement, at the time of recording anyway, that a landmark deal has been reached for the TV rights to the Women's Super League football coverage. And as part of that multi-million pound deal with Sky and the BBC, the Beeb will broadcast 22 live matches, at least 18 of which will be shown on BBC One or Two, and the others will be online or via the red button. And up to 44 will be shown on Sky Sports Football, Premier League and main event channels. The remaining matches not selected by those broadcasters will be shown on the FA player as before. And what it basically means is that there will be one free-to-air match every weekend during the season and another two on Sky. 75% of the investment revenue from that deal will go to the WSL, that's the top tier, and 25% to the Championship, which is the second tier. It's a bit less than the £5 billion price tag attached to the Premier League rights, but it is apparently the biggest commercial broadcast agreement in women's football globally, and it will no doubt make a big impact on the game. But what kind of impact? I always feel sort of conflicted by big announcements like this about the women's game because on one hand we're told it's progress and it undeniably is, at least to some extent. And this has got to mean more people are going to watch, more sponsors will want to be involved, there's more money which means better pay, which means better quality football because you're not having to be an accountant the rest of the time you're not playing football. 
It means more young women see it, more young women aspire to a career in football, the talent pool grows, etc, etc. It is undeniably a positive move. But then you have the inevitable, well, money's ruined the men's game, which is true to an extent, but it's also made the Premier League the most watched league in the world. And I kind of think it's patronising to think the women's game somehow has to be more wholesome than the men's game. Even if I do kind of think it myself, the internal struggle is so real here. But one thing I think maybe should be a bit of a concern here is the disparity between leagues that the broadcast rights can contribute to. There's a salary cap in women's football, but it's a soft cap. So a proportion, in fact 40%, of the club's turnover can be spent on salaries rather than a hard cap, which used to be a maximum of four players per team with a salary of £20,000 a year. By the way, I'm not suggesting we return to this just for the avoidance of doubt. But clearly, there could be quite a big disparity in turnover between the top and second tier clubs once you start looking at those kind of splits in the broadcast revenue. Once there's so much more money in one league, I think it can be quite negative in terms of competition between the different leagues. And you certainly see that in the men's league. There's just you, you just cannot compete as a lower league team. You can't compete with the big boys at all. There's just such a huge, huge difference in the wealth of those clubs. Anyway, not wanting to shit on anyone's picnic here because it it is good news, but I just think that's something that we need to think about maybe. Meanwhile, a massive tip of the hat to Rachel Blackmore, who became the first woman to be a leading jockey at the Cheltenham Festival last week. Yes, you remember Cheltenham. It's that place where everyone goes and gives each other coronavirus and some horses run around at the same time. The 31-year-old Irish woman had a total of six wins, which is more than the entire British contingent, apparently, and was also the first female jockey to win the champion hurdle. Another tip of the hat to Sarah Taylor, former England wicketkeeper, who's been appointed by Sussex County Cricket as a wicket-keeping coach, which makes her the first woman ever to be appointed as a coach in men's cricket. And she told the BBC, As soon as I walked through the door, they didn't care that I was a woman. They knew what I was there to do, and they were great. I do like pushing boundaries and breaking glass ceilings. I may be the first, but I certainly won't be the last. Absolutely, let's hope not. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back next week with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, I know you literally only just told us in the Bush Telegraph, but I forgot what film are we watching this week. This week we watched Memento, not the first, like I erroneously told you last week, but the second film directed by Christopher Nolan, released in the UK 20 years ago this month. The title can, of course, refer to the scraps of paper and Polaroid photos protagonist Leonard Shelby keeps as he attempts to find the man responsible for his wife's death. But it's worth mentioning the film was based on an idea by Nolan's brother and longtime collaborator Jonathan Nolan, which he went on to put down in a short story called Memento Mori, which, let's test your Latin here, means... Isn't it like a remembrance of death, like the Victorians used to put hair in a locket and stuff? There you go. It means a reminder of mortality. But interestingly, its literal translation is remember you will die. Oh, yes, Memento, it's full of nuance, just like Buddy's song last week. (laughs) As well as being created by two brothers, it was produced by two sisters, Suzanne and Jennifer Todd, which only confirms my theory that siblings are the perfect people to talk about the nature of memory. The film plays out across two timelines. The first, filmed in colour, 
begins with the aforementioned Leonard, played by Guy Pearce, killing Teddy, played by the ever-motormouthed Joey Pants. That's Joey Pantoliano for the uninitiated. That timeline then runs backwards, making Memento a why-done-it rather than a who-done-it. In order to accommodate the jumps backwards in time, this timeline is intercut with another which runs forward and is filmed in black and white, in which Leonard relays the story of Sammy Jankis, he of the Remember Sammy Jankis tattoo on Leonard's hand. Sound complicated? Well, you'd be right. And Memento kicked off a long-term relationship with fucking with the time frame by both Nolans. Christopher went on to direct things like Interstellar, Inception and Tenet, and Jonathan went on to create notoriously twisty-turning HBO drama Westworld. Memento was one of a number of films released around the millennium that plays with time, like 2001's Donnie Darker, which we should maybe rate or date later on in the mm. year, 2002 French drama Irreversible, which also played backwards, and uh, 1998's Execrable Sliding Doors. Now, I can't <laughs> believe I've mentioned all those films in the same breath either. Turned down by every distributor, including Harvey Weinstein, who later tried to buy the rights, wanker, the production firm ended up distributing Memento itself, which was a huge financial risk, but one that paid off. It made more than $40 million at the box office. Like many other films we review in this section, the United States Library of Congress deemed it culturally, historically or aesthetically significant and selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. Let's just take a quick look at the response from the critics. 93% on Rotten Tomatoes and near universal acclaim, although some critics said it didn't amount to much without the time twisting, which is something Mickey and I can speak to having seen this before. And surprisingly for me at least, I remembered how it ended or started, depending on how you look at it. Some other critics claimed it was too complicated, which is something Jen can speak to having not seen it before this watch. Where response was 100% positive is in the film's representation of anterograde amnesia, which afflicts Leonard. And for those who don't know what that is, it's probably best described as having the inability to form new memories or the loss of short-term memory. Physician Esther M. Sternberg, director of the Integrative Neural Immune Programme at the National Institute of Mental Health, identified the film as, quote, close to a perfect exploration of the neurobiology of memory. Okay, I am going to start with Jen, because I just want to check, and this is not in any way to patronise you, but just because we sometimes come away with different impressions, that you got what happened at the end slash start of this film. I mean, it is complicated, and I actually read the plot on Wikipedia and still found it complicated reading what the plot was shall i leave it there for now rather than go into do you feel like you understood what was going on i suppose was the question no not a fucking thing <laughs> it felt so like christopher fucking nolan being christopher fucking nolan it just it, it frustrated me there is somewhere on vimeo somebody has cut it so you can watch it in order which is interesting okay. um obviously it's not the perfect way to watch it because it takes away from the two killer shocks in it what are the killer shocks well the first being that natalie is an absolute fucking dick which i think you might have suggest you might have suspected throughout it but you didn't know until you reached that point in the story and the second of course is that 
as well as the fact that everybody's been lying to Leonard, Leonard's actually been lying to himself throughout the yes. whole way through it, which is the second shock, which is the shock I remembered. I have to say, I don't remember the scene with Natalie being as quite as brutal as it was. Mickey, you've seen it before. Tell me what you made of, of a second viewing. I still think it's great. I think it's a really weird criticism to say that without the time play, it isn't anything because the whole point is it's about the playing with time and playing with memory and how we remember things. And it turns out everyone is unreliable, including Leonard, who's our narrator. Yeah, I think it's it's a cracking watch. And I do. Yeah, me too. I do love that, obviously, on his Polaroid to remember people because his memory doesn't last. He takes pictures and he annotates stuff. And so you know there's something about Natalie because there's a crossed out bit on her Polaroid. Mm. So you were like, oh, when do we find out what he wrote there? And it's interesting when he does write down that Teddy's told him not to trust Natalie. She can't be trusted. He writes it in different writing to the Mm. rest of his writing because you know he's just going to cross it out later because he's already written Don't Believe His Lies on Teddy. And I think Teddy is incredible casting. Joey Pants, because... His characters in other films are in our memory, so we're already like, don't trust him. And so it it talks about our memory and stuff as well. I think it's great. I read uh, an interview with Christopher Nolan in which he said that in some ways he regretted casting Joey Pants because people were suspicious of Teddy and continue to be suspicious of Teddy beyond the point when you actually should no longer have been suspicious of Teddy. Because they were carrying baggage that came with Joey Pants rather than the character of Teddy, which I thought was interesting. I mean, he didn't say he he regrets it, but he said in some ways he thought that audiences would maybe be a bit more sophisticated to go, well, it's Joey Pants, so he must be in the wrong. Like, obviously, Teddy reveals at the end, which is also the start, whichever way you're doing it. But when he is about to get shot and you hear him and uh, Leonard having the conversation, he admits that he's been using Leonard. Uh, He's already killed the guy who attacked his wife that's already happened and then he's just been using him to get other john g's who are bad in inverted commas and he says i'm i'm a john g it could be me kind of thing Mm. but people were not trusting that and still thinking he was the guy who killed his wife is that what you're saying that seems to be the case yeah okay i think it's i think it's quite obvious yeah obviously But some people, as the, some people believe all sorts of stuff, don't they? Some people just don't like to believe that there is an answer. They're like, "Oh yeah, but what if we don't know what happened before?" So, what if he, what, what if Teddy was lying? Because we've been to, we've been told not to believe Teddy, but we've been told not to believe Teddy subsequent to that moment. But then, do we have to believe Leonard, who says after that, "Well, I'm just going to make up my own narrative now and stick with that"? Mm. I think it's really yeah. interesting in what it says about memory. Because, you know, it comes up when people go and try and describe stuff to the police, crimes that have happened, Mm. that they ask you the same questions time and time again. And your story won't be the same or exactly the same time and time again, because memory doesn't work like that. It's not a bank. Mm. I've got like some traumatic stuff in my head and I see it in Polaroids or snippets of film. And while they're always the same, there's no set narrative. There's no continued Mm. narrative that I can just access like it's a bank. Yeah, in fact, they do say that if somebody does stick to the same story the whole way through it, then that is actually an indication that it might not be true. Who told you that? Joey Pants, don't fucking believe you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I actually, not only do I think it's rated, I actually think it's a better film now than it was 20 years ago. And I tell you for why, 
it's because Leonard, I think Leonard is like 2020. What he's doing in 2001, when this film was made, isn't particularly relevant to the world that we live in. But I think watching it in 2021, he has a really, really, really short time, amount of time in which to make decisions. And so he makes snap decisions. And because those he's made them in a snap decision and he doesn't have all the remainder of the facts because he has no short-term memory that snap decision then becomes the calling card for every single person within his life there's no nuance there's no forgiveness there's literally no forgiveness and in fact arguably you could say that he has a victim mentality because he's stopping himself moving forward he's hanging on to the trauma he's not letting it go and i think that is actually a world we live in now rather than the world we were living in when this was made, if that makes sense. Not that aspect of him, but there were aspects of him that reminded me of you, Dunleavy, actually. Uh, like his note. <laughs> I'm all about nuance and forgiveness. Like I said, not that aspect, uh, because you are. But um, his note-taking was incredible because he literally just like cherry-picks. <laughs> it's like that time we had a big meeting and you just wrote Christmas, sort it out, and your own name. <laughs> and my own name. I've actually written down on here, I would be fucked if that happened to me because my ability to take concise notes is, is, there's just nothing in there. Hannah's tattoos are a thing of wonder though. (laughs) (laughs) I also think it's it's actually, and it's very rarely mentioned, in parts it's really, really funny and it's down to Mm -hmm. Guy Pearce because in many ways Leonard is a child because everything is new to him. And so uh, despite the fact that he's quite an ill-looking man who's killed who knows how many people, who's on this desperate, miserable mission. Mm. Yeah, it's just this horrible mission. It's mixed with this really childlike wonder where, so it's beautifully written, where we're like, where am I? What's this? Am I drunk? It's hilarious that he has a a shower at Callum Keith Rennie's, like, motel room when what he actually supposed to be doing was go there to kill him and he thinks it's his and starts having a shower and it's totally hilarious in the chase between them when he sort of comes to <laughs> halfway through it goes what's happening am i chasing him is he chasing me yeah, yeah it is very funny agreed jen do you agree with any of these points we're making or are you still a bit oh. i just didn't enjoy it to be honest I just didn't enjoy it I found it too complicated I do think again part of that is to do with my sort of frame of mind at the moment I also think I maybe have to stop watching films on a Saturday night after I've spent like the whole day lyraing because I think maybe that is not like my optimum time to kind of like pay attention to things and and take in new information I didn't particularly enjoy it I, I wouldn't say it was dated I just didn't really get very much from it because it was very complicated and it did feel a bit like Christopher Nolan trying to be clever for the sake of it. Obviously, that's your opinion, but I would say I disagree with that enormously. I think if he wasn't trying to be clever, then it wouldn't actually have made any sense as a film. I totally get what you're saying. It is stupid to say. Maybe I've just said it, I don't know. Um, But it it is daft to say, oh, it wouldn't be anything without the time because that's the whole fucking point of the film. That would be like saying the Titanic would be nothing without the boat crashing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And obviously that's a shit film, so it's a bad example. Mm. But I don't think that. I just, I, I was just a bit like, oh no, I, no, I can't, I can't be doing with this. Well, I mean, I can understand it, Jeb, because what Nolan does by not giving us the full information is puts us in Leonard's head. I would say that Leonard's head isn't necessarily a place that a lot of people would want to be. So that is fair yeah. enough. It's quite fun, though. I think I think it's 
playful. I think it's a playful way of doing it. And yeah, it was good to watch it again. I remembered way more than I thought I had. I've also got to say, she's not in it for very long because there aren't very many female characters. There aren't actually many characters at all within it. But Carrie Ann Moss is brilliant. She's so good in it. She's so good at doing that yeah. warm, charming, we might be lovers. And then that horrible, sinister edge to her when she is quite clearly duping him and using him. This is the this is the level of where my brain's at at the moment. I spent quite a lot of time thinking, at what point did I start thinking of him as Guy Pearce rather than Mike from Neighbours? <laughs> I think that's valid. But he wasn't their first choice. They were going to go with Brad Pitt. Mm. They wanted a big name. And Brad Pitt was interested but had scheduling conflicts and said no. And that's when they decided, actually, we're just going to get a real quality actor. We can pay them a bit less because our budget is small anyway. And, you know, it's about the story, not the name. But he, I think he absolutely holds it. It's because it's all on him. We are in his head. And he is incredible. I think he's a cracking actor. Mm. He's one of those people that I'm a little bit confused why he's probably not more famous than he is. Because he's a cracking actor, but he's made some really good films as well. Mm. I mean, you can look at some people and say they're a cracking actor, like... I always use Eric Banner as an example for stuff, but he is actually a really good example. But he's made some terrible decisions, some really, really bad films. Yeah. Whereas Guy Pearce, he's made good choices. He's made excellent films. LA Confidential is amazing, and he is brilliant in it. Uh, the Proposition, the Nick Cave oh, Western, so is brilliant, and he's yeah, brilliant in such that. A good film. And he's worked very consistently, actually. If you look at his filmography, he's worked really... And, and I don't think... I think I kind of thought he'd sort of disappeared a bit but he's actually worked really consistently for a really long time okay well i feel like this is largely for the birds but rated or dated mickey rated absolutely rated thoroughly enjoyed it yeah i'm gonna say rated plus one if that's possible <laughs> yeah more. i think it's more rated than it was the first time i saw it again i don't really feel like it's uh i don't think it was dated it just it just wasn't for me fair enough so, Mickey, you get to choose next week. What are we going to be feasting our eyes on next week? She's not a child anymore. She's got the keys to the door. What's the song? Anyway, Erin Brockovich is 21. So let's watch Julia Roberts in what is quite clearly one of her best roles ever. She looks great for 21. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.